My name is Rose and I'm a teetotaler. This is the positive label I choose for myself. I do not know if I was ever an alcoholic. I don't come from an AA background, so I don't feel tied up by the traditions. There is little point in me spending much time on my early childhood. There is no great trauma or drama hidden there. It was not perfect, all the usual stuff, but nothing that offers any excuse or explanation. I always felt I had the right to be myself and to have a voice. I realise now how grateful I should be for this. Certainly there was no sense of gratitude at the time. I thought my family unbearably dull. I always wanted to belong to some other more interesting family and entertain fantasies about not being my mother's child at all. The race to adulthood and to cut loose was strong. I started smoking cigarettes in my early teens. At 15, there was an obsession to lose your virginity, common among my school friends. There was much kudos if this happened while it was still illegal. And after 16, the objective was to get served in pubs while this was still illegal too. I started drinking in the village pubs as soon as I could get away with it and smoking cannabis occasionally. I took magic mushrooms once and disliked the lack of control, physical and mental, so much that I never wanted to try anything else. I don't think there was anything unusual in my experimentation at this age. It was tame by comparison, if anything. I was intoxicated by the rebellion rather than the substances. The pubs were full of characters. I was attracted to an unusual older man and rapidly I find myself in a relationship with a 30-year-old disabled artist who lives with his mother in a cottage in the middle of the woods. It is like a place out of a fairy tale. I am intrigued by the man but I am absolutely captivated by his life. Into this life I am welcomed and accepted and encouraged without question. Nothing is made of him turning up with a very young girlfriend. Two weeks before my 17th birthday, I dramatically slammed the front door of my family home with a bag over my shoulder and my parents can do nothing about it. We made home together and I thought I was being an adult, but in truth, I was still being cared for like a child. The artist took care of the practical things, cooking, laundry, bills, and I went out daily to my office job. We spent a lot of time with his family and its extensive circle of bohemian friends. I see now that I was humoured and indulged and how often I was given special treatment. I guess that the family had imagined that their temperamental and physically disadvantaged brother was never going to have an independent life and that keeping me sweet was a way to make their lives easier. In effect, during these early years, I was invested with all the responsibility for his emotional well-being as they unloaded this burden from their own shoulders. I still see this period in my life as a sugar-coated fantasy. In many ways, it was a wonderful time. We got married and found a perfect little cottage of our own. Alcohol, nicotine and cannabis were not an integral part of our lives, although we were not completely abstinent. That I wasn't living in a reality started to hit home when I had our first child three weeks after my 21st birthday. One of the problems of being in a relationship with someone 15 years older was that my peers were at a different life stage. His sisters and brother had young families and that was what I aspired to. Things were difficult from the outset. I had absolutely no idea how all-consuming it was going to be to have another human being completely dependent on me. I was not overrun with the sort of maternal feelings you read about in parenting journals. I was overwhelmed, exhausted and clueless. My confidence was a mind undermined from the very outset. My mother, with whom I was reasonably well reconciled, would say things like, I can't understand why you would want to go back to work. I never wanted to leave my children. I do not think she meant to be cruel, 
she was just speaking her truth. My mother-in-law would say things like, my daughters are such wonderful mothers. My sister-in-laws were not openly critical, but they did not offer any practical support or encouragement, and their way of doing things did not feel natural or comfortable for me. I couldn't have told you this at the time, but at the heart of my diminishing was my husband's behaviour. They even have a name for it now, coercive control. But when you are living it, your awareness takes a long time coming. We had a second daughter 20 months after the first, and shortly after we had to move house. This marked the start of my true unravelling. I had postnatal depression, a proper hormone-induced incapacitating. I know there were complete days when I could not get out of bed. I know this is true, but I have no memory of it. Our new home was much more isolated and I had given up my job. We lived on my husband's social security benefits and there were money anxieties. My husband was largely in control of all matters, but he was not independent and could not drive. I developed obsessive compulsive behaviours, cleaning mainly. I became obsessed with the neighbours and would spy out of my bedroom window on them. I'm ashamed of this behaviour, but I now see that it was a displacement and avoidance activity. I did not have to think about my own marriage if I was thinking about theirs. And if I was sitting at the bedroom window, I was not in bed with my husband. At the time, I did not realise how much insanity there was. Life carries on and things get done. I went back to college, an English A-level first and then law. I was completely engaged intellectually and successful with my studies. And it was so separate from the inadequate person I had become elsewhere. We improved our housing situation and moved into the local town and the sense of isolation diminished. I found a job at a solicitor's office and took more qualifications at night school. I had become completely compartmentalized. I've tried to recall memories to help me tell my story. I can bring up images of my colleagues, my fellow students, my wonderful teachers. I cannot bring up a single image of my children. I've also tried to recall exact conversations with my husband, things he said or did. I've tried to understand why I was frightened all the time. I know that I measured everything I did. There was always a calculation about how I could do things in a way that would not cause an upset. I can't even explain how an upset manifested itself. I felt like I was going mad all the time, except when I was at work. He did not physically assault me, but he often smashed things. In particular, he would destroy his own artwork and more specifically any artwork that I had praised or said that I liked. His illness was used as a constant threat. There was an awareness that I could be responsible for a relapse or a hospital admission and how I wouldn't want it to be my fault. My husband only had one hospital admission during our 12-year relationship and that was shortly after our first daughter was born. He told me about the sexual abuse of his father on his sister, and during that night, he started bleeding from his bowel. I had to drive to the phone box to call an ambulance. The medics who came were incredulous that I was living with a newborn and a seriously ill man without a telephone. Their disbelief fueled my anxieties and inability to cope with the unpredictability of my husband's illness. I was part of a deeply dysfunctional family whose candy floss veneer hid some terrible secrets. My relationship with my own family was repaired, but I had become totally dependent on my husband's family and their crowd. I've been struggling to identify with the words unmanageable and insanity from the first two steps. 
the drinking behaviours are detached from this time by many years, but I now identify this period, the years from the birth of my second daughter until several, year, several years after I left my husband, as unmanageable and insane. I got out of the relationship, made my life manageable and restored myself to a sanity of sorts, but I see that I've been dragging the chains from this time ever since. The unresolved effects have been impacting on my behaviours much more than I realised. In January 2000, I said I was leaving. My husband was furious and made many threats, suicide among them, and finally screamed at me to get out of the house. He did not know that I was ready. He thought that the threat of being thrown out would make me climb down. He thought I would beg for time, time he could use to manipulate me. Probably even he believed that I would not leave my children. Within half an hour, I had walked out of my home, my marriage and left my children behind. I had my car, my clothes and my official documents. I took nothing else and later during the divorce, I surrendered ownership of the house too. I know that I sacrificed my children to save myself. My actions prove the narrative that had been written for me from the very beginning, that I was a lousy mother. No mother of any value would leave her children in the care of an abusive man. It would be disingenuous of me to say that I did not know what I was doing, even at the time. I had made my calculations. I had waited until our housing situation was secure and my husband had a driving license. I had waited until the girls had the part-time safety of regular school. I calculated that if his daughters were with him, he could not commit suicide. I reckoned that if he had the children, the families, mine and his, would rally round him. The mums at the school gates would swarm around this poor, abandoned, disabled man and he would be showered with attention and sympathy. I was not wrong. I failed to weigh into these calculations the extent to which his abusive behaviour would transfer and was in denial about how much my girls would go on to suffer. I also failed to calculate what a heavy price I would pay in social condemnation. It would be wonderful to say my life came positively transformed now that I had escaped an abusive relationship, but this is not at all true. It is more accurate to describe the moment of the separation as the midpoint of a very destructive spiral. My husband continued to manipulate me, albeit at arm's length. Contact arrangements were fraught with difficulties, threats and criticisms. He was very active in his charm offensive with my family and my mother saw her granddaughters as the priority in this scenario. At the time it was very painful and the upshot is that there was no emotional harbour for me in my family of origin. Even if I could have found the vocabulary to explain my husband's behaviour, I would not have been believed. My husband made it clear to his own family and friends that contact with me was unacceptable to him. I was completely cut adrift from everyone except my work colleagues. Once I became unchained, the 20-something was released and I did all the sorts of things that are fairly standard for a young woman making up for lost time. I went out drinking, I started going to nightclubs, I took up smoking again, nicotine and cannabis. I became quite promiscuous and had casual sexual encounters while looking for love. Some were okay and some were highly ill-advised. I cannot get away with blaming the booze for some of my poor sexual choices. I rarely drank in new environments because I need to stay in control in unfamiliar surroundings. I would only drink or smoke 
if I was somewhere I felt safe with people I knew well. I never drank alcohol to make me feel more confident or more social or more outgoing. I find that easy enough to fake without chemical assistance. I was still emotionally unavailable for my children. I resented their neediness at weekend contact visits. I felt completely incapable of caring for them adequately and their presence interfered with my social life. My job was stressful. I was working for the child protection department and my files were filled with a caseload of extreme abuse and neglect. This gave me a skewed perspective on my own situation. On the one hand, it was minimized by comparison, but on the other hand, the impacts of my own trauma were being supercharged by this daily diet. I was not caring for myself properly. I did not know how to cook. Much of the time I would eat only crisps and chocolate and go for days without a proper meal. There were obsessive behaviors and extreme exercise. I would walk and cycle for miles over difficult terrain day or night, it was quite reckless as I would often be crossing fields or wandering coastal paths alone in darkness. I did not invest in any furniture beyond the minimum or make any effort with decoration at my house. It became unsustainable. I was struggling too much and financially things were difficult. I moved back in with my parents. This made practical things more manageable and was probably better for the girls but it was also full of emotional challenges and allowed me to abdicate my mothering even more. I would often leave the girls in the care of my mother at weekends, which made her furious and my children heartbroken. There is nothing for me to be proud about from this period of my life. It was damaging for everyone involved and incredibly self-destructive. By the beginning of 2002, life was starting to stabilize. The divorce was finalized and I got better at avoiding my ex-husband's abuse. I would put the phone down if he started ringing and would only stay on the line for appropriate discussions relating to the children. I had re-established a friendship with someone who was close enough to my ex-husband's family to understand the dynamics without being under the spell. She was supportive of my mothering and not involved with a drinking, smoking crowd from the village. I quit my job and went freelance, which gave me greater flexibility over my hours and the nature of my work. I enrolled with a counsellor and had some therapy. I swore off relationships and took a break from that emotional roller coaster. During the summer, my friend's brother came to visit and it was one of those lightning strike moments for me. Here's the man I meant to spend the rest of my life with and he's been right under my nose. As quickly as I thought it, I slammed it back down. Hadn't I sworn off relationships? Hadn't I realised all the falling in love was just my mind playing nasty tricks? What a complete disaster it would be to get involved. But I was proper lovesick and my mind spiralled into chaos. I did not confide in anyone. I had an innate sense that it was not safe to share and I felt like I was going mad. There was a plan that the brother would return in September for a six-month period of work. September loomed large in my imaginings and then his arrival was delayed and delayed and he did not return to the UK until late November. In my madness, I had convinced myself that when I saw him again, all the feelings would go away and I could get back to normal. Coincidentally, friends who lived a few miles from his mother's home asked me to babysit on the same night that he arrived. I decided I would go and visit him the next morning. That night, I was sexually assaulted by the husband of the couple that I was babysitting for. 
I cannot tell you why I was unable to prevent it happening. I do not understand why I did not just get up, walk out the house and lock myself in my car. I know it was not something I wanted to happen and that I was saying no, but I cannot be sure whether that no was only in my head or whether I was able to articulate it out loud. I do not understand this event at all. I feel completely detached from it. I cannot see myself in the person who was unable to protect herself. I do know that I should have been safe in the home of my friends. I do know that I am lucky that the wife returned home and the husband made a hurried exit from my room. It could have been very much worse. I did go and see the brother the next morning and there was no return to normal. Just two damaged people in a lot of pain looking for an emotional lifeboat to cling to. We started a relationship and it was like setting off a hand grenade. Perhaps unsurprisingly, people who knew us both thought it was not a good idea. My children found it very hard to accept, but it was his sister, my friend, who took the news extremely badly. I now realise with the benefit of distance and observation that she has a salvation complex. She fills her entourage with damaged people which she can steer towards the light and then bask in the glory of being instrumental in their redemption. She had envisaged the perfect future for us both and those futures did not involve each other. We had messed with the plan big time. At the beginning she did everything she could to undermine me in the eyes of her brother. Every secret we ever shared, any weakness in my character was used against me. And when this was unsuccessful, there were straight lies. This was such a painful experience to lie upon the top of what had gone before. Many years later, after an unsuccessful attempt at a family reconciliation, she would expose me to an intense campaign of bullying and intimidation. As a result, I cannot be in a group of only women and not be triggered. So shout out to the Tusnua men. Your being here makes me feel safe. And to the women, I'm sorry. If I seem a bit off sometimes, it's really not about you. I'm still very embarrassed by this episode. I don't understand how a 30-year-old woman can fall victim to bullying and be powerless in the face of it. Despite everything and the usual ups and downs of an ordinary life, I must celebrate 20 years of being in a loving relationship. There have been some very difficult downs. There is an almost complete estrangement from my husband's family. We quit the UK and my contact with my daughters reduced to about three times a year. Struggles with social isolation and language barriers living abroad. My mother dying from cancer. But the highs have been amazing, working as a labourer on a building site and as a life model at the art college. Some great road trips and fishing trips and sailing trips. A return to the UK and a steady improvement in relations with my daughters. The birth of my third daughter and my only son. The birth of my two stepsons, our marriage, becoming beekeepers. It seems a shame to have dedicated so much time to the crappy bits of my life and skirt so briefly over the best bits. After my mother's death, we lived with my father at his request. But I got itchy feet and I think I was uncomfortable about living in my childhood home again. We moved back to France with two pre-teens and my 85-year-old dad at the end of 2016 and life became quite stable and predictable. 
On the face of it, everything was good, but I fell into bad habits without realising. We were living a typical French lifestyle into which regular alcohol consumption was well integrated. Every dinner was a family get-together, a moment to talk and to share. I've never drunk alcohol searching for oblivion. Generally, I set occasion-appropriate parameters for my drinking and then stay within those boundaries. The times when I've got really drunk have been occasions when I have not been in control of the measures. The quantity of alcohol consumption remained largely stable. The sweet spot for me was the pre-dinner drink, half a bottle of wine or a couple of gin and tonics, just that little bit fuzzy around the edges. Speed drink the first glass, luxuriate in the second, all safe in the knowledge that the imminent arrival of dinner would bring a return to sobriety and a disciplined mind. In fairness, I think that this is a pattern of behaviour reflected in the homes of hundreds of ordinary women who do not think they are alcoholics. What changed over time was how my relationship with alcohol manifested when I was not drinking. The best way to explain what I mean is to set out a typical 24 hours. Let's start at noon, it's lunchtime, and I'm thinking about what tasks needed in the afternoon for me to be ready for G&T o'clock, dead on the dot of 5pm. Crack on with the tasks, all the while indulging in fantasies about sitting down with my drink and how fabulous it is going to be. Check the fridge, make sure there is ice and tonic, do we have limes, do I need to go to the shops for supplies? 5pm arrives, G&T arrives. This is my prize, my reward for getting from one end of the day to the other. This is how my value is celebrated and how my family shows their love and appreciation of me. Special time, we are all together in the sitting room. We chat, we watch a quiz. It does not escape my now sober gaze that at this moment of great intimacy with the people I love, I was seeking not to feel fully present. 6pm and dinner is served and my capacities are largely restored. 7pm and the resentment starts to kick in. I just want to flake out on the sofa and watch the telly and I get away with it for perhaps an hour. But there are chores to be done and at 8pm, steeped in bitterness, I drag myself back to duties. What needs to be got ready for tomorrow morning? Do I need to do a load of laundry? I do not do these things with good grace, even as I know that it is a fair distribution of labour within our family dynamic. 9pm, kids and father are dispatched to bed, and this is special couple time, but I'm not feeling very special, stewing in my soup of self-pity and post-booze come down. 10pm and off to bed, we could have sex, that would be nice, but oh the effort and quite frankly I'm not feeling so great. A bit of a headache, mouth like something dead, not the sort of mouth I'd want to be kissing. Certainly summing up the energy for anything exotic, it's just not happening. 11pm, falling to the sleep of the dead. This isn't a restorative sort of sleep. This is a sleep where the whole focus of the body is on eliminating toxins. With a depressing inevitability, elimination of toxins means pissing them out and the bladder alarms a 2am wake-up call. 2am to 4am are the long hours of self-flagellation, resolutions and bargaining. I won't have a drink tomorrow. I'll only have one glass tomorrow. I'll alternate water with wine tomorrow. 4am brings a surrender and at last the body and mind can get a bit of peace. We should be generous and say that 9am is an okay time to wake up. Sluggish, hungry, smelly, generally feeling a bit pants all round. 
try and achieve a few things without much enthusiasm, perhaps exercise a bit of self-care, maybe have a shower, maybe something to eat, get ready for the kids coming home for lunch, repeat, repeat. What I really want to communicate here is that although my volumes of alcohol were not increasing, the amount of time, energy and headspace being taken up by alcohol was becoming overwhelming. And I haven't even mentioned the mental struggle and resentments that would come up if there was a day when I was prevented from my evening drink for any reason. Alcohol was not controlling me, but it was dominating me. This is the place I am to be found around Christmas 2019 with an underlying feeling that it was not okay and something was going to have to change. But the prospect of the sort of change necessary was not very palatable and I was pushing those thoughts away. During our regular family holiday to Portugal, my 88-year-old father suffered a stroke. He's okay. The main implications are on my stress levels and practical necessities. His driving is banned. We extend our holiday by one week to be sure my father is stable. The drive home is 1,800 kilometres over two days, and it is not something that I find easy at the best of times. I am very preoccupied. Plans must be made to get my dad and his girlfriend and his car back to our home in France. It's a bit boring for me to go into all the details, and it perhaps seems a bit ridiculous, but I want to emphasise, justified or not, that I was under tremendous stress at this time and still drinking pretty much in my normal pattern. We decided to fly back to Portugal and then drive my dad's car and the oldies home. I must find someone to look after the children. I realise I never leave my kids with anyone apart from my dad when he is at ours and there are no trusted regulars to call on. I find an acquaintance couple who seem to be good grandparents and they agree to look after the kids for four days. I'm, I'm going to condense the journey. Car, train, metro, bus, hotel, bus, plane, taxi. Arrive at the villa on Friday afternoon. I really get quite drunk that night. I don't know how much I drink, but I know that I am not counting. I get a bit loud and leery trying to get a bit of relief from the tension. Saturday, with very bad grace and a hangover, organising two OAPs and packing the car grumpy at the prospect of no drinking this evening because of driving on Sunday, but I wasn't beneath polishing off a glass of dregs from the bottles in the fridge. Sunday is an early start. There are a thousand kilometres to cover. I'm finishing my shift at the 400 kilometre mark and have just turned off the motorway when the car breaks down. I wish with every fibre of my being that this is not true, but it is and I must do something. It is a horrendous experience. It's too boring to go into detail and don't have the time, but it was just so awful on so many levels. I have to block out the visions of throttling my father because this situation is all his fault. Finally, we wave goodbye to the car and the tow truck and head off in a taxi 30 kilometres back the way we came to the nearest town and a hotel. As we sat in the taxi going back down the road, we had already travelled, taking me further away from my children. Something properly snapped inside. I am able to come to an understanding with the insurance company about how we are to get home. And once I have contacted the acquaintances and explained the situation, I feel myself start to shut down from exhaustion. There is only room for three thoughts. Breathe, eat, sleep. 
We headed down to the restaurant and then my father clapped his hands together and said, I'll order a carafe of wine. Shall we have red or rosé? At that moment, a voice as clear as a bell rang out in my head and said, no, I do not want a fucking glass of wine and I am never going to drink again. I don't know what I said out loud. I suspect my husband stepped in and declined politely. He was highly vigilant to the fact that I was approaching the final straw. A showdown between me and my dad was not going to help anyone. My husband told me later he just needed me to hang in there until we got home because he couldn't do all the driving without my help. But the voice was so clear, there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that a fundamental truth had been spoken. If we're in a traditional meeting, I guess this is the time when people might leap to their feet and say, praise be for the higher power. But it wasn't a higher power. It was just that my brain was sufficiently quiet for the voice of good sense and self-preservation to make itself clearly heard. So often it is ignored or muffled by all the other bullshit that rattles around in there. I have not touched a drop of alcohol since, nor has there been any significant temptation. And it's not like the two years since that day have been easy. I could tell you the rest of the story about the journey home and eventually later retrieving the car getting my father and his girlfriend back to England and stabilizing his medical condition. How the pandemic hit just days later and all the rest of the quite challenging stuff that rolled out after that. Lots of tough stuff has happened since then and the only alcohol related thought that has passed through my mind is just imagine how much worse this would be if I was still drinking. My cellar is still stuffed with booze. I wasn't planning to quit. I'm so utterly relieved not having to live with the mental torment of trying to control my drinking. I have one simple rule, I never drink. And for me, one simple rule is loads easier to stick to than a whole bunch of moderation tactics. So I'm recovered. I've been dry for more than two years and it hasn't been a struggle. Why am I here taking up just newer space that could be used by someone else? There is a painful realisation that practical sobriety, whilst a wonderful thing in itself, is a far cry from emotional sobriety and true recovery. I've been living a period of what can only be described as smug sobriety. I've been sitting in my superiority, pitying my friends who are still drinking. I've been feeling physically revitalised, but I've not put that energy to purposeful use. I've still been miserable and controlling and self-indulgent. I've been living in fantasies about the future and failing to appreciate what I have in the moment. I've been neglecting my current needs and those of the people I love in favour of the grass is greener jealousies. I've frittered away money buying lottery tickets and imagining how altruistically I will distribute the winnings. I've wasted time browsing million pound properties that I imagine will give me the perfect life. I've been wishing my children's lives on fast forward so that the day I'm free of responsibilities will come sooner. I'm so far from recovered, it is shameful. I have a wonderful life. I have a husband that loves and cares. I have clever, funny, healthy children who have not abandoned me in spite of everything. I have a comfortable home in a beautiful place. I have food and shelter and adequate resources. I've been squandering my blessings in a way that is breathtaking. In October 2021, my world came crashing down when I discovered that my husband had been acting out on old addictions. Of all the things I thought I could depend upon, it was the honesty in my relationship. 
It was a very harsh wake-up call and I was extremely distressed. The wonder of Google search brought me to traditional Anon Fellowship, UK-based but with meetings on Zoom. I have nothing negative to say about the welcome and support I received in that fellowship. It was absolutely necessary at that moment. I needed the specialist experience, strength and hope that was available to me there. What I really learned during the three months I went to those meetings was that my husband's behaviour was not at the core of the problem. It was my own negative behaviour patterns that needed the work. My reaction to discovery had been extreme, programmed by previous experiences rather than being a reasonable response to what had actually happened. I came to a realisation that I wanted to heal and I was readying myself to find a sponsor and work the steps. But once I really started digging into that, I saw that it would be completely impossible for me to participate with any authenticity where there was such a heavy emphasis on God. Three cheers again for Google and the question, can you do 12 steps without God, brings me via a few skips to the doors of Tusnua. I like to visualise this as coming to the front door of a brightly painted Irish cottage and having it flung open wide in welcome. There is water boiling on the stove and a fire in the hearth, soothing voices and the sense that there is enough tea in the pot and time in the world to get it all off your chest. So here I am, two years sober, but barely started. Um, that's what I wrote, and I felt <laughs> it was really hard work, but I really needed to say it, so I really appreciate having the opportunity to do that. And I want to end more optimistically and say that, despite that being a bit sad, today I feel super optimistic. I feel it's possible to make changes. I feel more courageous than I ever had before at looking at my past and trying to wait, find a way forward. And I'm really happy to receive feedback. Thank you, everybody.